to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we are kind of pressing on along in 1 John, and it won't be long, and we'll be in 2 John, and then 3 John, and it'll be Advent time, almost Christmas. 1 John chapter 4. If we could, I would like for us to stand while I read through verses 7 through 21, and then we will dive in. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has sent, who has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray together. Father, We do thank you so much for your word. And we are grateful for the opportunity that you give us to freely gather and to freely read your word and sing your word and to teach your word. And Father, we come here knowing and trusting that you have called us here, each and every one of us, for a specific purpose. We all come from different walks of life, from different places, but we're led here by you for your purpose. And we also come trusting that from whatever and wherever we come from today, that your word is applicable to our lives. And so we pray now, Father, that we would receive your word. 
that our hearts would not be hardened and that our lives would be radically changed by the good news that you have loved us first. So we do pray that you bless the reading of your word and that you find glory in our time together as we are filled with joy that comes from knowing you and being known by you. We ask that your word would act as a sandpaper for us this morning. That it would refine us, that it would rub against us to sand off the the faults and the failures, and that we would see Christ as glorious. And we would find rest and confidence and assurance in knowing that love comes from you and that you are love. That we would be reminded of the love we had at first, that we would be brought face to face with the truth that you love us more than we could ever think or imagine. And that our lives would then become a reflection of your glory and your love to the world. So we ask that you would just meet us here this morning, Father. Through the presence of your spirit. Because of the work of your son. We ask all of this. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. So this morning, we're obviously looking at the truth that God is love. Now, in, in light of the false teaching that John has been addressing in this letter so far, um, that we have talked about much, where um, these false teachers were pulling out of the church um, because their beliefs in Jesus had changed and had really weakened. Um, they were no longer seeing Jesus as the Messiah. Um, they were they had a, a false view of who Christ was. And so John has been addressing that. And now um, in, in these verses, he begins to shift his attention slightly. Um, again, talking to the church, talking to those who had held fast, who were trusting in Christ. But he wanted to remind them that even in the midst of them holding fast to um, their doctrinal beliefs, to their biblical conviction, to the purity of the gospel that they were holding tightly to, to not forget that even in the midst of that, that we are called to love one another greatly. And that can be something that we tend to do. We could be um, either on one side or the other. You have people who hold really super strong, tight biblical convictions that we get coarse in our love. And then the other side where we love way so much that we kind of, you know, fudge a little on the biblical convictions. And both of those are wrong. They sh- we should find ourselves right in the middle ground where our doctrinal beliefs, what we believe that the Scripture is teaching, lead, leads us to love one another greatly. So both are vitally important. And, and as we learn about the goodness of God, as we learn about the, the love of God and the glory of God, we will be then propelled to love each other. And so that's what John does. Is he reminds them and points them back to the love of Christ so that we could then be reminded 
to love others. See, because once we, as Christians, are reminded of the love of God in Christ that was put on display for us when Christ gave His life, then we're motivated to abide in Him and to love others. And it becomes delight for us to do that. It's, it's not a duty. We don't love because we have to love. We don't love because it's a box that we have to check. We love because God has loved us. We want to love. We are driven by love at that point. And as we've said over the last several weeks, um, sometimes that love is hard. Sometimes it's love not by the world's definition or standard of love, but it's a love that sometimes leads to rejection and it leads to some hurt. But it is refining us. And the main idea of where we will be today is this, that God is love. And that those who confess Jesus as both Lord and Savior will live as a reflection of His love. We start in verse 7 with the very first point that we see, and that is love is from God. Again, verses 7 through 12, Beloved, let us, not, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever, has, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So God is love. That is that He is the very definition of love. He is the ultimate of love. He is the precise measure of love, not the world standards, not what we see in movies or read in books. This is the love of God. It is the epitome of love. It is, again, the very definition and the ultimate standard of love. And love begins, began with Him. If we are to know anything of love, we have to look to God. And as he is writing this, he is revealing to them that our love for others reveals that we both know God and have been born of him or born by God. That is that we have been bought with a price. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ that God has loved us, and therefore our love shows that we know Him. Because how can anyone see the love of God and accept the love of God and not love in return? Love is not optional. It's not if we feel like it, then we will. No, if God loves us, then we are to love others, and we will because we have understood how much God has loved us. How do we know? Because the cross is the ultimate display of God's love for His people. 
That's what he says in verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And there's so much here that we could unpack. God loved us first. We didn't love and then God loved us back. No, God loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he, Jesus, would die in our place for our sin. He loved us despite us. Again, Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates or shows his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that means before we ever even existed, God knew who we were. He knew what our heart would be. He knew where our hearts would be. He knew the sin that we would harbor. And Christ being God, when he come to the cross, he took all of the sin of all of his people for all of time upon himself. And God crushed his son as this propitiation for our sins, as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Because we sinned against God, we deserve death. We deserve to be separated from God. But God, in His love and His graciousness towards us, provide a sacrifice. See, the penalty of sin is death. So, because of our sin, which is for all of us, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, then the purchase for redemption from that sin could only come from a perfect sacrifice. I can't pay for my own sin if I'm marred and if I'm broken. But Christ in love comes as the perfect God-man, and He gives His life as a ransom for many. And he did so knowing your sin and mine. That word propitiation is an odd word for most of us, but it's quite possibly one of the most beautiful words in Scripture. That God would love us enough to send his son to die in our place for our sins. We could spend... Years unpacking just even that one verse. It reminds us of another, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And as difficult as it is, if we would try to wrap our mind around that truth that the creator of all things, holy and righteous and majestic, in all, arrayed in all of his glory, would love broken, sinful people enough to sacrifice His Son for us should completely floor us. That alone should just crush us. You think about that, especially if you're a parent. Could you imagine sacrificing your child for the good of others? Especially the good of others who really weren't deserving of it. And that's exactly what God did. He gave His Son to save us. And it's that love, the love of Jesus then, that motivates our love 
for others. So we love sacrificially because he has loved us sacrificially. And this word that we see at the beginning of verse 11 that we see in also in verse 7, but over and over and over again in first, second and third John, beloved. He's turned his attention to these people he loves so much. And again, as a like a fatherly affection or a pastoral plea, he is exhorting the church. He's building them up. And he's simply reminding them if if God in Jesus has loved us so graciously and so selflessly, then how are we not to love others? How can we not love others? And that's really the gist of a lot of what's taking place here. If, if we say that we love God, but there's no love in our life, then do we truly know God? The answer is simply no. Because we can't look at the cross of Christ. We can't reflect on the glories of Christ and not love in return. Because if we understand how greatly God has loved us in Jesus, then our lives will be radically changed. We can't continue to live how we want to live. So Christians must always reflect the love of God. We reflect it in the way we love others. And again, it's God's love towards us and our surrender to that truth, that leads us to love. And it's not just simply loving people like us, right? It's loving people that are not like us. It's loving people who we might actually disdain. It's loving people who might hate us. It's loving people who look different than us, who act different than us, who do things different than us. And you might object to that and say, yeah, but some people... Again, but God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. There were no stipulations to that. We were enemies of God. I mean, the Bible says that we were enemies, haters of God, children of wrath, even anti-Christ. So we were against everything godly because of the sin within us. And God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were there in the depths of our wretchedness, God loved us. And so our understanding of God's love for us should lead us to love others and it should lead us to worship. Think about that later when we sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's all from Him. I want to hear a reminder that I read in a commentary as I was studying this week about the love of God. He loved us first. He loved those who hated Him. He loved those who were different than He. His love accomplished what we 
what was best for us, even though it wasn't what we wanted at the time. His love continued when it wasn't convenient. His love perseveres even though we wrong and offend him. And he loved at extreme cost. Just think about that for a minute. The very first one, he loved us first. I mean, if we look at ourselves and our lives, how many times have we been guilty of saying, well, I'm not going to love that person. They don't even respect me. They're not going to show me anything. We did nothing for God, and he loved us first. He loved those who hated him. Again, we just said, we are haters of God, enemies of God, children of wrath, antichrist, and God loved us. Even on the cross, as he was being beaten and scorned and despised, he loved. He loved those who were different than him. He was perfect in righteousness. He was hated because of who he was, and he loved. His love accomplished what was best for us, even though it wasn't what we wanted at the time. God knows more about what we need than we could ever imagine, that we could ever think. He is all-knowing. He is sovereign above all things. And so even when we see things happen in our life and we want to question the goodness of God or the working and sovereignty of God, God knows exactly what He's doing. And it may take a year, it may take two, it may take a lifetime before we can look back and truly see how good God has been in guiding our steps and directing our paths. His love continued when it was inconvenient. I mean, when it was convenient. It wasn't convenient. I know that hits me extremely difficult. I mean, right, I mean, that hits hard. How many times I've just avoided things because it was inconvenient at the time. God's love is unchanging. There are no stipulations. He never stops. He continues to pursue us. Which goes exactly to the next one. His love perseveres even though we wrong and offend Him. How many times have we built a wall between us and someone else because they've done something to offend us? Or they disagree with us, or they don't see things quite the way we do, or maybe they do something to hurt us, but God's love persevered even though we constantly do Him wrong. And He loved us at extreme cost. He gave us His Son. So love is from God. He is the very definition. He is the ultimate standard. He is the precise measure of love. And as John is writing, he goes into this next little section of verses to really kind of give some evidences of salvation. So are we truly saved? And we live in a culture, society, where so many claim to know Christ, but do their lives show and reveal that fruit? Verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of his spirit. Those who truly trust Christ receive the Holy Spirit. 
It's not you receive Christ and then you receive the Spirit at some other time later when you achieve some level of righteousness. That's not the case at all. A gift of God to those who trust Him is His Spirit to live within us, to guide us, to help us in our journey in following Him. In other words, our God-honoring love for others is evidence that the Holy Spirit is living within us and is confirmation of our conversion. We see people loving in a way that makes not a lot of sense. It's good evidence that they truly have trusted the Lord. The Holy Spirit lives within all who trust in Christ. That means the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God is living within you if you have confessed that Jesus is Lord. And you have believed in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. That He has done all of that to save you from your sin. And he goes on in verse 14 and 15. He says, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So another evidence that someone is truly a Christian, has truly received salvation, is they confess Jesus as both Lord and Savior. And remember, our view of Jesus is the hinge in which everything else swings. If we miss our the right view of Jesus, then we miss it, period. And it's important that we understand that it's those who rightly confess that Jesus is the Son of God, who truly believe that He is both Lord and Savior. A lot of people say they believe in Jesus, but do their lives reflect that belief? Remember, even the demons believed and they shudder. Have we truly trusted in the reality that Jesus is God And that he has come to save his people from their sins. And that without him we cannot attain salvation. We can't check boxes. We can't live a holy enough life to receive merit from God. The only way to be saved is to trust in the work of Christ. So it's more than simple belief. It's surrender. Being a Christian isn't easy believism. It's about discipleship. It's about following Christ. Doing the things He would have us to do. And doing those things with the help of the Holy Spirit who is living within us. That we would walk every day by His grace and for His glory. That we would receive joy in serving Him. See, because God is love and because he has actually loved us to death, we should abide in him. And if we do so, he remains with us constantly. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. One of the beauties of salvation is that when we truly trust in Christ and we call on God to save us, then we are saved for the rest of our lives. We can't lose that salvation. We can't give that salvation up because it was never ours that was earned. 
It was a free gift given by God through the death and work of His Son. So if we're rightly confessing Jesus and the Holy Spirit is living within us, then we will truly remain in His love. That is, we will continue to believe the truth that God loves us. And the reason he's saying that to these particular people is because a lot of them who claim to be in their circle left and believed a false view of Christ. And so he's giving them a little confidence and assurance to continue to remember the truth that you're holding tightly to. It's right. It's good. And the true Christian continues to believe that God is love and they continue to hold fast to the truth that God loves us. And they also continue living out that love for others as well. Again, without stipulation. Without a hope of receiving something in return. It's unconditional. Verse 16, so we have come to know and believe that the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. If you have rightly confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you've believed that Jesus and Jesus alone can save you from your sin. then God abides with you through the. Dwell, indwelling of His Spirit within you. Now let's kind of break down that abiding in love aspect. Verses 17 and 18. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect Love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Christians have complete confidence because of the love of God. There's no fear. Why? Because God's love for us, and when I say us, those who have truly confessed Christ, who are genuine Christians, not by name only, but have truly surrendered to Christ, we can live in assurance because of God's love for us. Remember, He loved us first. And His love is perfect. And His love doesn't give way. And basically what He's saying is, yes, we will stand before Him in Judgment, but if we have trusted in Christ and rightly believe that Jesus and Jesus alone can save me, then when we stand in judgment as believers, we can do so in full confidence, knowing that the righteousness of Christ has covered us. We're not standing in judgment trying to boast of our own deeds. We're not standing in judgment trying to push forward our own holiness, our own working of goods, our own boxes checked. We can simply say, I am his and he is mine. That Christ has saved me. That he has covered me in his blood and his righteousness. I don't have any of my own. All I have is Jesus. 
And that gives us confidence to love greatly. God has loved us so much that He gave His Son. And in giving His Son, He has given those who confess in Him His righteousness. And we're free to live in the grace of the Lord. We don't have to be anxious if we're checking or not checking off boxes. We don't have to be full of anxiety on whether or not today was good enough. Because none of them are. The best day we have in serving God is not good enough. The only thing good enough to pay for our sin debt is Jesus' death. So rest in that. And let that free you to live for the glory of God. Those who have truly confessed Jesus, who have asked Jesus to save them, and their lives are radically different, have this realization that they've been covered by the blood of Christ. So, if you are truly saved, you need not live in fear of rejection or condemnation from the Father. Why? Because you have been bought with a price. The price of a perfect and righteous, holy God in Jesus the Son. And Jesus' sacrifice is the only pure and perfect sacrifice that was available. And it's the only one needed. And God is not going to reject Himself because God is good. And God is the very definition of love. And so if we're covered by the grace and the work of Christ, then we can stand without standing in rejection or condemnation. Now, does that mean we're going to be perfect? Absolutely not. We're still going to fail. But that's one of the beauties of being covered with the righteousness of Christ. That it's not my own, it's His. But the flip side of that is, is that doesn't mean we just go on living our life any way we so choose and think that it's okay. Because if that's our mindset and if that's how we are living, then we haven't truly confessed Jesus as the Christ. Because again, to understand God's love for us leads to a radically different life. Remember, even though we call this series Basic Christianity, what that actually means is radical Christianity. Because basic Christianity is radical. It's different from anything that we know. It's different from anything that we can understand. And it's far different from anything that the world will see and understand as well. Look at verse 19 and following. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Christians are commanded to love because God is love. Commanded. Now, the thing about that command is it's not optional. 
And while we, none of us like to be commanded to do anything, and everything within us wants to object to a command, the command to love because God has loved us is radically different if we understand that God has loved us. And it no longer becomes a duty to love. It's a delight to love. We find joy in loving. We find fulfillment and purpose in loving because we know that God has loved us. And the thrust of that command for us to love is completely rooted in the promise that He loved us first. And because He loved us first, we no longer try to earn His love. Why? Because it's already been given. And our gratitude towards Him and towards His grace and towards His love for us is simply delightful obedience. So then, we must be ever reminding ourselves of His love through the reading of the Bible, through gathering with church for worship and reflecting on His goodness towards us. Now you might hear that and say, yeah, well, those are boxes. I'm checking off boxes. You just told me I don't have to check off boxes. These things, if we have truly experienced the love of God and surrendered to Christ, they're no longer boxes. This is just part of our life. This is really a central part of our life. We should be hungry for the Word of God. I I told you a few weeks ago a quote I read from Spurgeon, and it says that there's enough dust on many of our Bibles to write the word damnation across the front of it. We're not hungering after the Word of God. And if we truly understand the love of God, we will hunger for the Word of God. And we will desire to worship, to gather with brothers and sisters, to worship our great God. And the 90 minutes we spend together on Sunday morning shouldn't be the culmination of our worship. That shouldn't be the total, the totality of our worship. That should simply be a part. It should be rejoicing together that we have already been worshiping, worshiping Him all throughout the rest of our week. But sadly... For a lot, this 90 minutes is about it. But if we truly love the Lord, then we will hunger for His Word and we will desire to gather to worship Him and to sing His praises. We also will reflect on His goodness towards us, always remembering the goodness of the Lord in our lives. To be reminded that without Him, who knows where we would be. It's all because of Christ. And what's the result? What's the result of understanding God's love for us? What's the result of understanding that God loved us first? What's the result of understanding that God loved us enough to give His Son to save? Love for Him and love for others. Anybody remember DC Talk? 
I heard some like slight chuckles, like embarrassing chuckles, like I don't know if I need to admit that or not. But they had a song a long time ago called Love is a Verb. Um, it's true. Love is action. We don't, we don't say we love God and do nothing with it. If, if we love God because he has loved us, then it will be reflected through our lives. God has loved us in Jesus in a way that completely contradicts human reason. You want to know why many of the most staunch atheists in our society are, are brilliant? Because they are brilliant people. They get so caught up in the thinking and the human aspect of reason that they, they can't comprehend the miraculous work of God and the miraculous love of God through Jesus. It contradicts everything we should believe. It contradicts everything we should understand. It contradicts everything we should be able to reason. And it does so because we don't understand what true love is. True love is sacrificial. True love gives. True love lays ourselves down for the good of others. True love is found in God who, again, loved us first, and he loved us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And if God loved us enough to die on our behalf, Regardless of what you've done or will do, why wouldn't you want to trust Him as Savior? What's the holdup? Because I can assure you, you've never been loved like God loves you. You never will be loved like God loves you. Why not trust Him? And maybe you're saying, but there's just so much crap in my life. There's so much sin in my life. I, I don't know that God could truly love me. I heard a quote a long time ago. So there's more grace in Christ than sin in us. So you think about the most grotesque sin in your life. The most wretched thing about yourself. God's grace is greater. And Christian, if you know that God has loved you this much, how can or why do you, we, continue to sin so easily, so wantingly? How do we live so lax as people of God? The love of God is vast, unmeasurable, and strong. So let us rest in the love of God and live wholeheartedly by His grace and for His glory. Let's pray. Our Father, You have loved us. in a way that 
sometimes is difficult to understand. It's difficult to understand because we're trying to comprehend it with finite human minds. We're limited. We try to understand things in the way that makes sense to us. Your love is greater than anything we could ever think or imagine. And so when we come to that point of just not understanding it completely, we rejoice that you are greater. We rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ Jesus who you sent as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And what freedom and joy we have as your people to know that it's not what we say, it's not what we do that is going to determine whether or not we make it to heaven. It's whether or not we trust in the work of Christ. He is our only hope for salvation. Thanks be to God that you loved us that much. So may we rejoice in your love and find rest in your love. And for those of us who are here that may be realizing that maybe I truly haven't ever surrendered my life to Christ for salvation. God, I pray that you encourage their, their hearts to to find rest in you today. To say that I'm tired of trying to do it my own way. I need you, Lord Jesus. So Father, thank you for loving us. And may we rest in the assurance of knowing that we are yours. And you are ours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.